We are back in the book of Colossians. Uh, this is the fourth Sunday, looking at this passage, Colossians 2, 16 through 19. And we've entitled this particular passage, The Fullness of Grace. So Paul is reminding us that the cosmic Christ that he has introduced us to in uh, the first chapter of the book of Colossians is very much concerned about earthly matters. And even down to such a mundane thing as not accepting uh, the uncharitable or unjust judgment of other believers. He says twice in this passage that we've read together this morning, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one, if you look at it with me in chapter 2, verse 18, let no one disqualify you. This should remind us that, you know, if you're the old phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. In my mind, it has become an impossibility. The more heavenly minded you become, the more earthly focused you are. The king of the universe is intimately and uniquely observing and involved in the lives of his people on the earth. Uh, This word that Paul uses, let no one disqualify you, was something uh, that he mentioned, and it's always good to remind ourselves of this all the way back in verse 12 of chapter 1, where he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. So if the Father has qualified me, then Paul is saying, Uh, He has qualified me through the work on the cross. He has qualified me in the waters of baptism. Uh, If the Father has qualified me in such a way, then it is my responsibility to refuse to allow anyone to disqualify me. So we started looking at this passage last week, and we picked up uh, a little bit what, what William Barclay has to say. Uh, about this passage. He says, this passage has certain Gnostic ideas intertwined all through it. And again, uh, the word capital G-N-O-S-T-I-C denotes um, a belief system that was subscribed to by many different people groups in uh, the lands around the Mediterranean Sea. It is the word uh, gnosis, In in the Greek, it's the word that we get to know from in the English. And Gnostics basically believed, and we'll explore their belief a little bit more this morning, the Gnostics believed that there was kind of a secret to life, that most people uh, didn't have access to this secret, but if you followed after their teachings, then you would be enlightened, you would have an aha moment, and you would be able to live your life in a pleasing manner. We ran into uh, Gnostic uh, teaching in uh, 1 John when we went through that uh, not all that long ago. And as Barclay will tell us, most Gnostics believe that matter, material, including our bodies, is evil. And therefore, once you uh, come to this conclusion, have this revelation, then you can see life for really what it is. So there is a Gnostic sense uh, in this passage, but there is also a Jewish 
sense in this passage. This passage has certain basic Gnostic ideas intertwined all through it. In it, Paul is warning the Colossians not to adopt certain Gnostic practices on the grounds that to do so would be not progress, but rather retrogression in the faith, not going forward, but going backward. So we started to take a look at this word that Paul uses, the word asceticism, and Barclay says there is Gnostic asceticism. There is the teaching, this is part of the Gnostic teaching that is kind of intertwined that Paul is doing battle against. There is the teaching which involves a whole host of regulations about what can and cannot be eaten and drunk. In other words, there is a return to all the food laws of the Jews with their list of things clean and unclean. So we have kind of an admixture. We'll take a look at the word syncretism, but a good definition of the word asceticism. Again, you see this word in chapter 2 and verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. We'll take up the phrase and worship of angels, hopefully in the next few Sundays, but let's just focus on the word asceticism. It could be defined as Severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Now, the severest form of asceticism that I suffered as a child was my father did not allow me to read the funnies on Sunday. And of course, the Sunday paper back then, how many remember back in the day, the Sunday paper was when the funnies, the cartoons came out in color. And there were more of them. During the week, you kind of got black and white, a snippet here, a snippet there. Um, that That was the Ellis household practice of asceticism. On Sundays, I wasn't allowed to go outside and play. What was being taught was that Sunday, as we referred to it as the Lord's Day, was just that. It was the Lord's Day. It did not prevent us, however, from when we got home from church on Sunday nights to watch on the TV that our ascetic practice did not restrict us from. The TV, by the way, which we were not supposed to have. The TV, which, by the way, was bought by a father at a furniture store because it was housed in a very nice Amish cabinet that looked like a wash, you know, sideboard washboard that you'd put a picture and a a vase on or whatever, and the front of it had uh, folding doors and accordion-type doors, and it it was the nicest shade of green with uh, Amish paintings on it, so you could close the front of the TV, and I can remember several times as a kid, people from headquarters coming and sitting in our living room and admiring the that cabinet and never... Although maybe they did suspect. They probably went and looked at the back of it with that. Remember the tube stuck out in the back? Our practice of asceticism did not prevent us from watching Candid Camera, which came on Sunday nights at 10 o'clock. And, of course, there was no recording programs back there. 
if some poor person just couldn't speak in tongues and insisted on holding on till 10, 10, 30, 11, 11, 30, then my little mind was saying no candid camera tonight in school. Well, I won't tell you what I said about school on Monday. So ascetic practices vary. In the Catholic Church, there's been a long and kind of sordid history of ascetic practice. It has been harmful. It has not promoted, to a large degree, a, a healthy view of the human body. We, we do live in a fallen world. Our bodies are uh, fallen, as you might be uh, well acquainted with, every day of your life when you get up and you look in the mirror. This does not mean that our bodies in and of themselves are evil. A lot of this misunderstanding has been focused on, has derived from uh, the translation of the word sarcos, I think it is, in Paul's writings, which was translated in the King James Version as flesh. Put to death your fleshly desires. Back in the day, I think I heard my father-in-law more than once say, and probably Walter Gwynn before him, She's a fleshy woman. <laughs> and I didn't have to ask, what do you, how do you define fleshy? I just had to look at the woman and said, oh, that's a fleshy woman. I didn't say freshy. I didn't say fleshly. I said fleshy. Uh, it's a unique word coined in probably the Ozarks somewhere. What happened then in the church is that we raised a generation uh, which there were a whole host of things that were just wrong. They were just wrong. There was no real explanation. And if you ask questions about it, you were being uh, rebellious or you were being smart or uh, you weren't being submissive. And yours was not the question why, yours was just to do and die if that, that was required. You were supposed to obey, how many have heard this reasoning? You're supposed to obey the elders who have been appointed over you and, and submit yourself to them. And so there were a host of problems that generated themselves within uh, these hyper-fundamentalist groups that no one uh, talked about some new wars going on, uh, but we couldn't address those issues because we had kind of followed this Gnostic understanding that the flesh is bad. You have to do whatever you have to do to subdue the uh, subdue the flesh, to keep it down, um, to not exercise it in an unbiblical manner. There is a, a there is an ascetic practice, by the way that is helpful and, and not harmful. But we know that, that certain ascetic practices, when they are uh, pushed beyond their helpfulness, really uh, end up making the thing worse. How many have ever tried to go on a diet? Diets are tough. I, and I would have to say, in my fleshy self, that diets do not work. <laughs> what works is that there has to be a change of mind that it ushers into a change of routine uh, for a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, but how many replete have been 
uh, the examples of people uh, who've lost a lot of weight to regain the weight, to lose a lot of weight, to regain a lot of the weight. And it just, as much as we rejoice, I'm not one of those, in people who have lost weight, it can be a kind of cyclical thing. So there's always going to be, here's the thing. Um, We saw this last week, Paul's use of the word questions. He says, therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions. There's always going to be uh, questions about these things. There are always going to be people in the church who are very good at giving bad advice. They feel like they they are your problem solvers. You just do this. This will straighten out. You you follow, you know, do as I do. This, This is the practice that has worked for me. So asceticism, uh, properly understood and properly applied is one thing, but what Paul is speaking about here, he's speaking about these things that cannot be generally concluded to be a good thing. In other words, it's questionable. This practice is questionable. This advice that you're being given is questionable. This is something that we need to talk about. This is something that needs to be addressed. Uh, by the way, uh, hyper-fundamentalist groups do not uh, do well when someone starts asking questions. So there's another word that uh, Barclay uses here, this kind of mixture uh, between uh, Gnostic beliefs and Jewish law. And, and so uh, syncretism, uh, there is what could be termed going on in, in the book of Colossians, a kind of Colossian syncretism. What, what is a good definition of syncretism? The, uh, the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. So we have Paul as a Jew, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin, touching the righteousness that is in the law. He is looking at the Colossian church, and he can only speak from his own experience, and his understanding of Jewish law now has been uh, suspended by the fullness of grace that comes from the fullness of, of the cosmic Christ. So he's thinking no doubt about certain ascetic practices that he was exposed to as a child growing up and as a practitioner of the law. But he's also thinking about, because of the diaspora, the dispersion of Jews all over the Roman Empire, as we said last week, the further you got from Jerusalem, the more accessible were other religions of the world, other people's belief systems. And it appears that in the church at Colossae, we have this syncretistic mixture or this amalgamation of Jewish law and Gnostic belief. Barclay goes on to say the Gnostics considered all matter to be essentially evil. If matter is evil, then the body is evil. If the body is evil, two opposite conclusions may be drawn. A, if the body is essentially evil, it doesn't matter what we do with it. 
being evil, it can be used or abused in any way, and it makes no difference. So uh, live life in the fast lane. Have as much fun as you can. This is very up-to-date from, from the pages of the Bible. Very up-to-date philosophy. Die young, have a good-looking corpse. This is the idea. What's the big deal? What does it matter? What's the difference how I live my life? There was a statement by a young man on Facebook that I cannot say, I, I, I don't have, I cannot say in your presence, but a young man whose family I know quite well, and he ended up being uh, an atheist. And I can't tell you what he, what he posted on Facebook. It's entirely offensive, but he said, do you really think God cares if there is a God? He said, do you really think God cares where, what we do with our bodily parts? And I can't go into all the details. Of course, for a Christian, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Of course, if you believe that there is no God, um, then as uh, Sartre said, you know, the basic fundamental point of your life is that you should do something with your life. Do something notable with your life. So if you buy a gun, get in a truck, drive to an elementary school, and kill 19 kids, that is not any more morally reprehensible than you helping a little old lady across the street. Because there is no God. There is no uh, such thing as a moral law or a moral order. Now, we as Christians push back from that. We say, well, if there is no such thing as um, an order to the universe, why don't you just go over there and jump out of the 15th story window? And people do. <laughs> people do, right? Because to them, it doesn't matter whether I live or whether I die. What does it matter? There's, there's no rational explanation. You can live a good life and get killed in a car wreck. You can, you can live a quote-unquote bad life. Some of you look like, why did I come to church today? You can, you can live a bad life, right? And end up just sailing through life. Uh, Whitey Bolger, right? Was that his name? The gangster from Boston. Killed, I don't know, how many people? And, uh, but at, at the end of the day, he met his comeuppance in prison. They uh, transferred him to a different prison, and he didn't last, I don't think, a whole day there. Somebody allegedly who had mob connections serving time in prison uh, took him out. Uh, but why, you know, the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And then, uh, of course, there is a Christian response to all of this. We say, technically speaking, theologically, there are no good people. <laughs> and so the, the question is really, then turns on, on its heels and, and why do good things happen to bad people? If we're all bad as, in the sense that we're all living under uh, the curse of sin because of the fall, why, why does any good thing happen at all? So there are those group of people that just feel like, you know, I'm, 
I'm out to live life with as much gusto as I can. There is the Ayn Rand group who uh, believe that if, if you're capable of doing something, then you should do it. So uh, Hitler was capable of invading Poland and conquering it. And so the very fact that he was able to do that is a simple justification for his reasoning. If you can cheat somebody, if you can lie, steal, rob, if you can fake your way to the top, if you can step on other people's backs to get there and not give a hoot about what happens to them, if you're capable of doing that, then you should do that because it is, once again, if there is no God, it is the way the game is played in a world where the fittest survive. So you should do everything. Use every tool that is available to you to scramble to the top of the ladder. Of course, you've heard me say this before. What a disappointment it is when we get to the top of the ladder, we realize that the ladder has been leaned up against the wrong wall. So you can live your life that way. You know, the body's evil. There is no God. We see this in the pages of Scripture in the Epicureans. Eat, drink, and be merry. Here to eat. Why, why, why are we talking about food so much here? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But on the other hand, he says, point, point B, if the body is evil, then it must be kept down. It must be beaten and starved, and it's every impulse chained down. So Gnosticism then and its belief that matter and, and therefore bodies were evil could, could either be very licentious or it could be very uh, strict, strictly ascetic. So Barclay goes on to say, that is to say Gnosticism could issue either in complete immorality or in rigid asceticism. So it is the rigid asceticism with which Paul is dealing here. So let, let me just pause here and say in the midst of Barclay's teaching, it is the rigid asceticism that legalism subscribes to. Legalism says that we can give you what the fullness of grace cannot give you. Grace is good. Glad you're happy about it. Often I talk to people from my background and I, and I venture into the land of grace and they get this kind of knowing look on their face like, oh, isn't it a shame? Alan has lost himself in the wilderness of grace. We've seen this before. By the way, how's your church doing? Well, and my response is, our church is doing great. It's a growth that comes from God. <laughs> I watch a lot of church services on YouTube and Facebook watch and a lot of that. By that, I mean, I, I tune in and take their temperature as long as I can stand it. First of all, we're all on the same path. There's some people further down the path. 
but we're all on the same path. There's some people further back on the path. And that is not for the people who are further down the path to say, we're in front of you. Turn around and say, you guys back there, wish you were enlightened like we are. But we have to acknowledge that, you know, the, the statement that was made years ago by someone who said, uh, change membership from this church to another church. And they said, well, we like our new church because it's like Northside was 30 years ago. And when I heard that, that's exactly what I did. I'm like, so my mind was saying, so are you saying in 30 years you're going to be where we're at? The answer to that is not without a hell of a fight. I mean, if you take the temperature of hyper-fundamentalist church services right now, it's all about maintaining the standard. We cannot, you know, these used to be private conversations. Now, it is so desperate. The fullness of grace has been so corrosive in their midst that they'll even allow a man to wear a beard and sing in the choir. That's the corrosiveness of the fullness of grace. Of course, the poor women, we can only hope that somewhere in the crowd behind us, at some point, the women will also be allowed to wear beards. Just seeing if you're awake. Why is it that first step is, you know, and I I heard uh, years ago a sermon 40, almost 40 years ago, preached by uh, the head honcho of the group. You know the group that I'm talking about. And he said that there, he even said at that time, there was nowhere in the Bible that prohibited men's beards. But he said, we have always had the tradition that we were clean shaven because we did not want to be associated with the world. And then he went on to talk about how Certain groups, you know, wore a beard in a certain way, and you could tell that they were blah, 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 yada, 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 stuff that is largely just like old wives' tale, like a pregnant woman shouldn't, shouldn't see a snake. If she sees a snake, she's going to abort her baby, and a million and one other things. So I haven't proved or disproved that old wives' tale. But as time goes on, here, here's the thing about it. The message of Christianity, and we'll get into this in a minute, hopefully. The message of Christianity invites the believer to live their lives by principles and not by rules. Now, there has to be a principle for someone to develop a rule. In other words, the rules that govern Western society largely are are the Ten Commandments. And they're not suggestions, they are commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. So we develop rules from that basic principle that God uh, prizes human life and regards it as a transgression of his moral authority when we murder or kill. So we develop rules like less people get killed doing 60 miles an hour on the highway or 55 miles. I just love it. It's entertainment for me. 20 minutes from here on 270 to the Rock Road. 
and I put my speed control on, the speedometer says 55, but it's six miles off. I'm really doing 49. And I get all the way over in the furthest lane over. I'm not bothering anyone. You want to go around me? You can go and go around me. They do. You would think with a high guy gas prices, and I'll get off that, high gas prices that people would say, mm, you know what? If I, if I don't get 400 miles out of a tank full of gas, I am doing something wrong. I go till it says on the dash, check gauge. And then I go to the gas station and I fill it up and I get my little phone calculator out and I say to myself, I only got 19.3 miles to the gallon. You're driving too fast. Is anybody else doing that? No, I don't think so. Could they save money? Could they save lives? Do you know what it is to try to recover from a debilitating car accident? And you may only have $5,000 worth of insurance to cover your medical expenses? So we develop laws based on principles. But, as any trip down 270 will uh, let you know, we're not really interested in, in the rules and we're not really interested in the principles behind it. We are interested in ourselves. And your patch of real estate that you are presently occupying with that old junker car is where I want to be and you need to get out of the way. You ever have somebody get around you and they cut you off? Or they brake check you? What is going on? It's because a person who has come into the fullness of grace will understand that if grace has been received, then grace is to be given. What Paul is militating against here is a rigid asceticism. It is the rigid asceticism with which Paul is dealing. So uh, let's look at what, uh, we won't get through all of this today. Aren't you glad for that? You're saying like, what is different? Some things never change. We never finish the sermon. The sermon is an ongoing, I don't know, it's like a quilting party. We get a little bit of it done, and guess what? We gather next week, you bring your quilting stuff, we'll get a little bit more done. But the best part of the quilting party is the conversation and the food. Don't forget the food. Look with me in Matthew chapter 15. So uh, this is Jesus speaking. He called the people to him and said to him, verse 10, Hear and understand. <laughs> it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Jesus is giving us a very basic biological lesson. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Well, what comes out of a mouth? He's talking about human speech. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. 
let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Peter was always doing this. Explanation, please. I mean, a story is, a parable is a story, is supposed to make it plain. And Peter, dolt that he was, is always saying, I don't get it. Here it is, once again, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Yes, that would be be me. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Can we talk? not what goes into the mouth. It's what comes out the other end. That's the problem. Mm. I just want to say, this is the title of a song we all know. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> Look what he says. Do you not see uh, that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Those are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What is, what is Jesus saying? So you, you missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. You're focused on living your life uh, by rules and not by principles. Uh, Look again in in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. And called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciple asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? All these evil things, verse 23, come from within and they defile a person. Paul picks up on this teaching, if you look at it again, Colossians chapter 2, and he picks up on this kind of uh, plain spokenness of Jesus. So some people will submit to regulations, the end of verse 21. Here it is in quotes, verse 21. Do not handle, this is in, the passage that we haven't got to yet. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. Don't, 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 don't. This, this characterizes a life being lived by uh, rules and not by principles. Verse 22, referring to things that all perish as they are used. <laughs> and... <laughs> And once again, 
at least it's evident in the original language here that Paul is talking about the same thing that Jesus was talking about. So Paul is militating against this entanglement of Jewish ascetic practice and this combined with this Gnostic belief that the body is evil and therefore you must adopt practices of rigid asceticism, some of which were derived from the Jewish tradition. Am I, as a believer, to live my life careless or am I to live my life as carefree? There's a slight distinction there. I have, over the years, tried to remove from my vocabulary the phrase, I don't care. Because I think it's, uh, at the very least, it reveals something about myself that I don't want to let other people know about me. There are times when I just, frankly, I don't care. You ever been there? We all know that that's not the right posture. But sometimes we just get to, like last night, I almost said that phrase, I don't care. I ended up not saying anything, but my justification was there's nothing more that I can do. I am doing everything that I can do right now. So I've replaced the I don't care phrase with the phrase, it doesn't matter. Do you see the word matter in there? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's a phrase that I read from Harold's writing that has to do with um, Southern white evangelical sex, S-E-C-T-S. And it's strange how a person can take two words and put them together in such a way that they have a world of meaning. But his statement is a responsible indifference. A responsible indifference. Now, indifference is a little bit better word to use than, it's, it's way better than I don't care. It's better than saying it doesn't matter to say that I am indifferent to this. But Harold changed it up. Normally, we associate the word with indifference as avoiding a lack of responsibility. Don't put the monkey on my back. I'm indifferent different to it. But he says there is such a thing as a responsible indifference. Turn with me quickly and then then we'll quit for this morning to this verse of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are told that there were maybe five letters back and forth uh, between Paul and the Corinthians, of which we only have Two, first and second Corinthians. We know this because Paul says in the two letters that we have now about the things that you wrote me, and then he writes, he brings up a particular topic, and that topic is not to be found in what we know as first and second Corinthians. So there were some lost letters in the Corinthian correspondence. This is a typical approach that he takes in the Corinthian correspondence is that he quotes from their letter, and then he responds. This is not evident in the King James Version, by the way, but when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 23, if you're reading from the ESV, it begins with a quotation mark, all things are lawful. You see that? 
all things are lawful. Unquote. But not all things are helpful. And then again, he repeats the phrase and quotes one, once again, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Uh, not all things in the King James Version, I think it says, not all things work for our good, our expedient. So here, here's what I mean when I talk about living a life according to principles and not rules. It may be true, and I love this translation from the Passion Translation. This is how they translate this word. You say, under grace there are no rules and we're free to do anything we please. And then the Passion Translation has Paul saying, not exactly. <laughs> now, I've, I've been accused of having a bad case of the Zacklies, and I do. I get a bad case of the Zacklies every so often because I want, because life is lived in the valley of challenging discernment. What you're saying is kind of close to the truth, but not, what does he say? Not exactly. It is true, as the translation goes on to say, because not everything promotes growth in others. Your slogan, we're allowed to do anything we choose, may be true, but not everything causes the spiritual advancement of others. Now, Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 14 in a more detailed way where he talks about the weaker person, the weaker person in the faith. They are still in the faith, but they're a weaker person. A stronger person doesn't live their lives by rules, but lives their lives by principles. So it's interesting. I, if we had time this morning, I was going to have someone look up this verse of Scripture in the Message Bible and the Amplified Bible. Here, we'll try to finish it. Give me two more minutes. Christopher Asite says then, any calendar system or dietary system cannot be the reason for pronouncing judgments in the new body of Christ. Any festival, new moon, or Sabbath is now a shadow. Now, our culture, Western culture, celebrates what we call holidays. Holidays. Holidays came from the phrase, the Holy days. The ancient church had the liturgical calendar peppered with holy days. And the people loved holy days because it was a time to eat and drink. It was a holiday. <laughs> it was a time to indulge. And there were those tis tis tiskers in the church who said, the reformers being, uh, the most foremost, who said, this uh, holiday masquerading as a holy day is something that has to be changed. Paul says, these things were shadows. You could make out something. But now we have the substance. Why are we living in the shadows? When the substantial thing, which was cast by the shadow, is with us. He goes on to say, Why regard as indispensable ordinances as to eating 
when the one foreshadowed by Israel's manna is offering himself as the bread of life, John chapter 6. How can the observance of the Passover, outlined for us in Exodus 12, be considered a means unto spiritual perfection when our Passover has been sacrificed, even Christ? What justification could there be for imposing upon converts from the Gentile world the observance of the Jewish Sabbath when the bringer of eternal rest is urging everyone to come unto him. You see how easy it is for us when we avoid getting lost in the wilderness of grace, how easy it is for us to live our lives in the shadow lands. Thank you, Father, that you've called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And It is a responsible life to which you've called us. A responsible indifference. Uh, Not to get hung up on the rules, but to look behind the rules to find the driving principle, the purpose for the creation of the rule. You even told Israel, "I'm, I'm sick of your new moons and Sabbaths. So far into rules and regulations that they forgot the principle and the purpose. Help us, Father, to be responsible, to live a life carefree but not careless when it comes to others. We have a responsibility to the weaker person in the faith to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. When we embark on that responsibility to let no one disqualify us, to let no one pass uncharitable judgment on us, that at times it may cause strains in relationships with other people. Help us to be careful in the choice of our words and our attitude and our spirit, all the while recognizing that you have exercised the same prudence and grace with us. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.